0: As you may know, Adventure Rider Radio and ARR Raw are both powered by mixing some commercial advertising with listener support, and we really appreciate the listener support that we've got so far, because honestly, without it, we couldn't do it. There just wouldn't be enough there to do it so we have a support page set up at our website www.adventureriderradio.com just click on the support button I think it's even forward slash support Um, but just go to the website and click on the support button anything $10 or more is going to get you an Adventure Rider Radio motorcycle sticker sent to you uh, as a token of our appreciation and it sort of goes up from there anything $50 or more gets you a mention on this show which I'm about to do right now you can also do it monthly we signed up for Patreon because we had a number of people actually mention it to us and so we signed up for that and what you can do is you go to Patreon and you can you just put any amount that you want. Like I would say if you want to do $2, you want to do $10 or $25 or whatever. And that's monthly, that's just once a month. And it goes to your credit card automatically. And of course you can always cancel it too if you if you found you didn't want to do it anymore. But that's a cool way to do it because then we know what's coming in every month. Um, that would be neat to, to see more people going to that. Look, we, we really appreciate any support you can give. It does help make the show, and we count on it. We really do, as, as a way to help pay the bills, and you'd be surprised how much uh, all these things add up. But in any case, I want to give a shout-out to the people for this month that have went you know sort of above and beyond that call of duty, giving $50 or more. We're going to do the mention here on Raw. The list is Robert Carey, Hume Fairholm. Tim Piper, some of these names we've heard before, maybe several times. R. Michael Paul, and Ben Lucarelli. Um, Ben, you're probably not expecting to hear this because Molly did this for you for your anniversary. It's her way of saying happy anniversary. So happy anniversary, Ben. Scott Puckett, Lee Hoffner, Peter Hall. So Robert Hume, Tim. Michael, Ben, Scott, Lee, Peter, thank you very much. You guys really did great, and and we certainly appreciate it. And you don't have to do the $50, like I say, any support you want to give to the show, anything you you feel um, that it's worth. You know, if you feel you're getting some value from it, we would love it, uh, and we really need it, too. So if you want to drop by the website, www.adventurerideradio.com, and click on the support button. Thanks very much. In here, and
1: so unprofessional.
2: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) What makes you think Uh, we're professional?
3: (laughs) I hope you're recording this, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) That that, that would have just been one of those wonderful outtakes. Graham Field saying, So unprofessional.
0: to go? Is okay. anyone not ready to go? No way, From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Mississauga Lake in Ontario, Canada, it's July 2017 and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw and personal. My name is Jim Martin and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet. I'm joined by our regular Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Shirley Hardy-Ricks. Good morning, Shirley.
4: Good morning, everyone.
0: And you're all pumped up, ready to go. You've updated Skype and, you know, you're ready to, to kick the day.
4: Well, no, not exactly. We haven't quite updated Skype. It, it seems to update it itself. Ah. And um, I've managed to get the Lurgy, so I'm feeling lousy, but I'm here, which is good. I'm looking forward to today.
0: <laughs> just a translation, the Lurgy is...
4: Oh, it's just a cold. Ah, right. <laughs> but if I was a man, I would have the flu... I would have to go to bed for a week and probably end up in hospital because we all know about the man flu. You
5: just don't understand man flu, Shirley. Man (laughs) flu, Shirley, is a debilitating disease.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pretend I don't get that and move right on to your man, Brian. Brian Ricks, good morning.
5: Good morning, all. Good morning, and I'm keeping my distance from Shirley.
0: Grant Johnson, who is in, I think, Grant's in British Columbia. Good uh, afternoon, Grant.
2: Yes, it is good afternoon. Hello, everybody. Good to be back again. We've got uh, much better weather here, but the fires in B.C. are causing all kinds of issues. So we're just hoping that the wind's going to die and we get some rain.
0: Yeah, for those who don't know, the massive fires, like unbelievable fires. And mainly, I guess, mainland British Columbia, Um, we happen to be away for all of this happening, which I can't say has been disappointed. Are you
2: seeing smoke where you are? No, not here in Abbotsford, Um, but I was just up in the cusp preparing for our hum event, which is coming up next weekend, Uh, not this weekend, but next weekend, and the smoke up there is really, really bad coming back. The cusp area is actually good where the event is. We're expecting to have no issues with fires, but on the transit from the cusp to Abbotsford, wow, the smoke is horrendous, Mm. really thick.
0: Yeah, and they've evacuated a bunch of places. It's uh, it's horrible stuff. And and, and yep. Sam Manicom is also dealing with weather. You, you're under some massive thunderstorm watch for, what is it, all of UK?
3: <laughs> Top of the evening. Um, well, you know what weather's like, especially in England. Um, that storm rolled through about an hour and a half ago, and we're now left with a flaming red sky. It's quite wow. beautiful. Um, but, of course, the air is as humid as anything, Um, The storm having dumped loads of water on us, but it was quite impressive. We had um, some significant flashes of lightning and um, um, wonderful rolly thunder. So yeah, it was good fun. It's interesting. But I'm kind of glad it's gone now because if it hadn't, um, then I wouldn't have been able to be here because we'd have been unplugging everything.
0: Do you not normally get thunderstorms in the UK?
3: Um, not to this extent, no.
0: Yeah, because I, I saw on the weather forecast, it was the thing that you sent there, and it said that this, it was basically, I, th- I thought it said all of the UK was experiencing massive thunderstorms.
3: It's rolling its way up through the country. Um, yeah, it's, it's come up from Spain or something like that. Um, so we must have upset somebody down there.
0: We also have Graham Field, who stayed up late just to be with us all the way. Actually, I don't even know if you're in Bulgaria. Where are you? You're, you're actually on the road.
1: I am on the road. I'm still in Bulgaria, but yeah, I'm actually out on the bike being on the road like an adventure rider. So you, actually,
0: you actually just went just down the road to motocamp just to say you're on the road?
1: No, no. I'm like, I am like I couldn't even go. I'm so far away from home. I'm having to use my girlfriend's hotspot on her phone because I'm out of reach of my own Wi-Fi.
6: Wow,
0: that's <laughs> so, a long way. You, you must feel really yeah, good.
1: Yeah, no, it was actually, it was really good. Uh, we we got about three days. We're going to be riding around the Do- Radope Mountains, which is in the south of uh, Bulgaria. And I've heard so much about these and I've never got there. And today, uh, we're just south of Plovdiv, which is a big city. And uh, we stopped there, had food, bought a bottle of wine, especially for tonight's show. And just about to uncork the bottle of wine. It's We're in this room with a tiled floor. And my girlfriend kicked it accidentally. I'm pretty sure it was accidentally. And now we're in a room stinking of red wine. We didn't even get the cork cool out, it smashed <laughs> oh the carpet. Nice. Oh. And and so we scrubbed the carpet where it had gone on the carpet. And now, of course, we've got a really clean patch because the rest of the carpet was dirty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, wow. So are you able to get more wine or should we just shut well, this down that and come a back? Bit, another
1: well, this was the thing. I thought. Well, I did do a sober one once when I was in hospital, didn't I? But I was on morphine. So, but uh, so anyway, she uh, she went downstairs, woke up the landlord, and came back with a bottle of red wine. Like so she yeah. star. She's a keeper. <laughs> she is. I know. Wow,
0: <laughs> that, that's really good. Now, is she there with you? Is she going to be part of this?
1: Um, I don't think she's going to be part of it because I've got to wear earplugs, pl- and so all she's hearing is one side of the conversation, and that's mine. Do you notice? So. Do
0: you notice that Graham always whines about the fact that I ask him to wear earplugs? It's like any chance he gets, he's going to bring this up and throw it out there.
1: Stop whining! It's mentioning. Whining is when a bottle gets smashed on the floor. This is just mentioning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, a question that uh, that we've we've heard before and uh, we decided to discuss today, was, was how you got started in all of this. And, and it's kind of neat that you're on the road, Graham, and, and maybe we should start right with you. And, and what, what was your big kickoff? How did you end up getting into Adventure Motorcycle? And I know you traveled before, right? You went backpacking
1: before. Yeah, I mean, two constants in my life are traveler motorcycles. And I've, the great thing about being out on the road today, being in your helmet, is... Uh, printing out the questions that we were going to be asked, the topics, and then thinking about them in the helmet, giving them a great deal of consideration. So come the moment when you're asked, you know that you've rehearsed exactly what you're going to say. Unfortunately, the printer wasn't working, so I didn't print out the questions, and then I tried to remember what they were, and I couldn't remember. So this is like a spontaneous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but <laughs> this, is, this is what it's all about. It's not supposed to be rehearsed. You're not supposed to be you know, planning what you're going to say. This is supposed to be all off the cuff.
3: And that's where it's coming from. So, um... Well, uh, Graham, does that th- th- mean that th- th- as you couldn't print it out, you've written your answers on your cuff?
1: Yeah. Um, you don't want to know <laughs> oh, what well, I'm Oh, sorry, it that yeah, well. So <laughs> <laughs> back to
0: the travel. You mentioned that you, you're, you're sort of the constant has been travel for you. When did you start, though? What age did you start and why?
1: Well, uh, well, always... Uh, okay, let's, let's go back to the beginning. Um... My parents didn't want me to have a motorcycle. In England, you can ride a motorbike at 15. uh, No, 16. But you can't drive a car until you're 17. So all my friends were getting their independence as 16-year-olds, and I wasn't allowed to have a motorcycle. I had to wait till I was 17 and then get a car, pass my car test, which takes like six months. So they all had their independence at a time of life when you desperately want your independence, especially because I lived out in the country. So got the car started driving the car became like a taxi for all my friends and then simply couldn't afford to run it they used so much petrol so much fuel and so then i had the ideal reason i need a motorcycle i mean the fact that i'd been into it all my life i mean i have posters on my wall easy riders and all of that stuff so very impressionable always into motorcycles and then now you're sort of 17 and a half 18 well parents can't tell you what to do anymore so um Got my first motorcycle, grew my hair, got tattooed, and is still rebelling now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where the motorcycle started, and all that time, always there was travel, always there was motorcycles. But it just took a long, long time to put them to, to, to together. I mean, when I lived in the states, who did motorcycle trips around the around certain states but really for me it all started where i will consider it started would be when you needed a visa in your passport that for me is sort of epitomizes long distance motorcycle transfer travel you need a passport to get out of britain to get on a ferry to get across the channel but when you need a pass a visa in your passport to ride somewhere on your bike then that's proper motorcycle overland travel and for me that didn't start until quite late in life that started in 2010
0: why wouldn't you make the connection, though? You said you were doing smaller trips.
1: Well, yeah, but uh, it depends what you define as as trips, whether it's sort of taking some camping gear because you're going to a bike rally sometime away or whether it's, um, you know, trying to take a stove because you know you're going to be cooking because you're going to be away for a few days or... Or, or, you know, what do you define the sort of the actual motorcycle trip? And like I say, for me, the definition of a proper motorcycle trip with pack panniers and a passport with visas in is, yeah, I'm going for a while now.
0: A lot of people think it's, it's a natural transition. And I sort of am one of those people as well. I, I would figure that it would start with those smaller trips and then those smaller trips would gradually get longer. But, but by the sounds of it, you sort of you compartmentalized. You had those smaller trips you were doing, but you were still going traveling. You just weren't connecting the two together.
1: Yeah, I'd still go off. I mean, because the work as a truck driver, the work I did was seasonal, so I could disappear in the winter, and so I would always go off, whether it was just to uh, hang around India for four or five months, or down to South America or something. But it was with a backpack, or later on with a bicycle. Like I say, it took a long time before, hang on a minute, I love motorbikes and I love travel. Hang on a minute. I can well, put these together.
0: When you did Deal or No Deal, the, the television program you are on, and you you sort of declared that you were gonna you know make Charlie and Ewan and look stupid, which you've done, right? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> when, when you said that, did you already were you already planning at that point to go on a motorcycle trip?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. and I think I would have done it with or without that sort of uh, <laughs> that huge commitment by saying it on national TV. But yeah, I, that was that was a point where. I, I knew I was going to do it. It was just, um, it was just, uh, it was, it was just, and I know, right after that program aired, I was living in a fifth wheel trailer because my house was rented out as I was continuing to save and prepare for the trip. So that's for me where it started because so the trip ended up in South Korea, then went on to be a book, which then led to me being on Adventure Rider Radio. So that was the start of it all. How about you, Grant?
2: Well, (laughs) I started riding at 16. Um, Got my license on my 16th birthday and convinced my mother I should have a motorcycle. I still don't know how I did that. And then uh, about a year and a half later, I convinced her I should go racing, whether it was okay to go racing. I still don't know how she managed to say yes to that one at 17. But uh, I raced and did a lot of travel on the bikes and did some more longer distance after I retired from racing. Uh, That would have been... 1974, I think, 75, I finished racing and just it kind of seemed like the thing to do as an extension of, I mean, after you've done all kinds of different kinds of racing, what do you do next? So I just went on the bike and traveled and at one point I was single and then I met Susan and somehow or other, the subject of what do you want to do with the rest of your life came up on our first date and... Just right out of the blue, I said, I want to go around the world on a motorcycle. There's deep silence. Oh, okay. I've never been on a motorcycle. Hmm. Year and a half later, we were heading around the world. That was a long time ago. That was over 30 years ago now, wow. which is a little scary when you think about it. Thirty. Oh, my Lord. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little terrifying. <laughs> uh, so we just decided we were going to do it, and we put, we focused, we said, this is what we're going to do, and everything we did at that point became, what do we need to do to get going and get ar- heading off around the world? And we got a bike, and off we went, and we've been traveling in one way or another ever since. That was 87 that we started.
0: That was your first big trip, the one you did when you, when you spent, how many years did you go around
2: the world? Uh, well, it took us 11 years altogether. We started in 87 and we finally finished in 98. We stopped along the way for a few years in Australia and we were in New Zealand for a while and we were in Singapore for a while and um, various other places. And the the but goal was always to keep traveling, to do this trip, to finish riding around the world. And we did finally finish it, but it took us 11 years to, to finish the whole thing.
0: Now, Sam, you were... Um You were working, I'm trying to think because I know from your book, I think you were working in a store and you had no intention on traveling by motorcycle.
3: No, that's right. Um, I was listening to to what Graham was saying just now and um, having a little smile to myself because there are um, quite a few um, in tandem um, situations running. Um, I'd always been banned from riding motorcycles at, you know, sort of age 15, 16. Um, My friends were all getting little Yamaha FS1Es and Suzuki's and um, hotting them up. And um, yeah, I mean, these guys were getting all the girls and all of that sort of stuff. And for me, I was thinking, well, you know, this is obviously how you get a girl. I didn't know how to say hello to a girl at the time. Um, but a motorbike seemed to be a good introduction, but my parents kiboshed that very quickly on, and they were probably wise, you know, I, I've always sort of stretched boundaries a little bit and, um, I probably would have stretched, um, a motorcycle a little bit too far. Um, so I was, I was just banned and, um, ended up doing my first solo trip when I was 16 on a bicycle, um, outside the UK and, um, across parts of Europe. And um, after that, it was all a case of um, as, as many different ways as I could find to travel. And I did various trips, um, sometimes a year, sometimes three years, and um, sailed and backpacked and cycled and hitchhiked and various other things. And then um, with a little bit of pressure from my mother um, saying things to me like, didn't I think it was time to grow up, um, at the end of a three-year trip, I got back to the UK and um, thought, right, okay, well, I'll try this career thing. And... Uh, Settled into a job and did really well at it, and, um, yeah. um, But the itch was still there to go traveling, you know? Once you've been traveling, you know how interesting the world is, and if you've enjoyed yourself traveling, then you always want a little bit more, because there's so much more to to learn and discover. And I was sitting in the pub one night after work and thinking about life and where I was at, and um, I had this amazing thought... Sam, you don't owe anybody any money, your family are well, you've got no kids, you've got no pets, you've got no responsibilities at all. Do something different now, because if you don't do something different and take advantage of this situation, then you may never get the freedom that you've got. So what are you going to do? Well, I was drinking a fair bit of beer on that particular evening, and um, it's a wonderful grey cell tickler, isn't it? Um and the thought popped into my mind, well, actually, you know, if you're going to go traveling, then find a the different ways, a way that you haven't used yet. And a motorcycle meandered into my mind. Um, so the next morning I handed in my notice, uh, passed my motorcycle test six weeks later. And six weeks after that, I was at the edge of the Sahara looking south thinking, Sam, you prat. What have we done this time? <laughs> but, you know, it, I, I don't know, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss and I should have been absolutely scared witless at the beginning of the trip but I because I traveled a little bit before um that was a British understatement um I was I knew that you know if you use your common sense you treat everybody and everything with respect and you travel slowly you can do amazing things you don't have to let what you don't know put you off because if you're taking it gently and you're treating your environment and the people with respect then you'll learn and yes of course you're going to fall off both the uh, fall off the bike and fall off um a a cultural situation but because you're traveling slowly then usually the fall offs they're not painful and you learn each time you do that and hey isn't that just a phenomenal part of traveling all of the things that you learn about the places and about yourself um yeah so i mean it, it, it was all down to beer really Graham,
0: you also were a cyclist. That—that's one of the methods you were using for traveling too.
1: Yeah. Um, why did I cycle? Um, I don't like buses, <laughs> and um, it just seemed like. A, I think. I think probably what planted the seed was I was in Patagonia uh, hiking through this national park. Was so ill-equipped with some dodgy leaking trainers and this, this waterproof. A uh, waterproof suit that looked like a giant walking condom, and just made you sweat on the inside. And I did quite a challenging, like four-day hike, camping in this crappy little tent with this awful sleeping bag. And at one point, it was in Torres del Paine's National Park. It was snowing. It was it was January, which of course, in south Southern Hemisphere, is their summer. And um, and there was this little sort of plastic teepee, and a few people who had, were camping around it to get up. It was the closest spot to get up and see the sunrise in the Torres Paint Mountains behind. And uh, I went in there. And I was like, can anybody come in here? And there was probably like four or five people of various nationalities. And they were passing around whiskey. I had no food. I was so ill-equipped. And uh, there was a Belgian guy, and he'd cycled all the way there from, from Belgium uh, to where we were at the moment in, in Patagonia. And I was listening to his stories, and I think that probably planted the seed about, ooh, independently traveling under your own steam. I like that idea. And uh, within, when was that? That was in 2000. God, the next year. The next year I was cycling in China.
0: Was there many people, did you see many motorcycles around when you were traveling then?
1: No, I don't remember it. No, I don't really did. I mean, I was sort of on back roads and also and when i was in china then then it it was the same time of year but it was bloody cold again and um and i I mean i'd be going up hills up mountainous regions where you are just baking in sweat, looking forward to when you were going to reach the descent, you're listening to the note in exhaust pipes and engines from trucks to hear that they're changing up gears because they've reached the summit and they're going down the other side. You're looking for radio pylons on the tops of hills to denote that you've reached the summit and you finally make that summit and you go down the other side, the north side where the sun never shines, which is icy and so cold, the wind chill. So all that sweat is suddenly reason on you and there is no there is no reward for reaching the summit it's just a different type of pain uh so it was very hard work it was very challenging i enjoyed it it was rewarding but i don't think i'll be doing that again <laughs>
0: <laughs> now brian and shirley you guys ride together um how did you guys get started traveling
5: oh well maybe i start with how i started in the motorcycles i I was born and bred on a farm. My backyard was 90 miles of River Frontage and uh, all my mates at school had motorbikes. So I saved up my pennies and bought my first uh, motorcycle at age 12, I think. Uh, I'd been riding others before then. Um, and when the time came to get my licence in Victoria, you could get the licence for a motorcycle at 17 years and nine months, and your car at 18 I got my motorcycle licence, but my father came home with what's now an iconic car from a car yard and said, son, you give up motorcycles and this car is yours. And I said, dad, take it back. And uh, I went out on uh, large wheat properties, uh, stripping wheat on on headers, driving tractors and trucks and things, and um, saved up enough money to buy my first road bike and uh, I never had a car uh, until many years later. Um, as many know, I, I joined the police force and um, uh, I had a, quite a few um, rebel mates and we used to go riding, long distance riding to... Our nearest city it was probably 400, 500 kilometres away. Um, I can remember uh, just before... During the police force that uh, we'd been riding back from the beach and I had my girlfriend at the time on the back and we took off from the lights and we were going a little bit fast and I was the only one that got pulled up by the coppers um, because my, I think because my girlfriend had a bikini on, on the back and nothing else. <laughs> uh, I did lose my a bikini on the back? In, yeah. <laughs> I did lose my licence in um, uh, in South Australia Um so that less at the time, I was trying to join Victoria Police Force. Um, so I was honest and told them, and they said, yep, yeah, thanks for your honesty, and they still let me in. Um, so um, that was how I got into motorcycling. Always had a motorcycle, never been without at least one, probably more than one in the shed, sure, um, and elsewhere, but I'm not going to tell you about that. Um, and um, uh, travel, long-distance travel has always been a part of it here. You know you didn't need a passport to, to travel 8,000 kilometres from one side of the country to the other here. So for us here in Australia, um, long distance and camping uh, off a motorcycle was just part um, of the course, really, if you went anywhere. Um, and um, how we got into long-distance motorcycle travel was surfing the net one Sunday morning and I tied into a job, high, you know, Fairly high-profile jobs, both of us, and and I discovered um, your site, Grant, um, Horizons Unlimited. And I sat there and and read Chris and Aaron McTay's story about travelling the world, chucking in their jobs. And um, Chris and Aaron came to Melbourne, and uh, we looked after them. And I think I've said this before. I can remember sitting around our backyard, sharing a a beer with Chris, and um, I said to him, mate, I'd love to do what you're doing. And he slammed down his beer and he said to me, well, what's stopping you? I said, oh, well, you know, I had kids and, and all that sort of stuff. And he said, well, if you don't do it, you never will. And those words still ring true to me. You know, his big advice was, if you want to do it, it's not going to be easy. But what you do is you tell everybody you're going to do it and then you can't back out. Mm. And you have to go through with it. That was particularly good advice. It was. And we follow that advice to this day, you know, if we, if we want to go overseas. And it's it's not easy from here because you know, you've got to ship your bike and do all those sorts of things. But um, we pass that advice on to people to this day that um, once you start telling people, you look stupid if you're going to back out of it. So get on
3: with it and just do it. Sure? Uh, you, you guys are making me laugh because while I was coming down through um, Italy and Greece at the beginning of my trip, um, I was feeling... Sam, you're a complete idiot. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're, you're nuts. You know nothing. You're, the bike's telling you what to do, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that stopped me going, turning around and going home was that I told my mates in the pub that I was going to ride through <laughs> Africa, and I didn't <laughs> dare go back exactly. and face them. That's right, Sam.
5: That's exactly right. The sure story is a little different getting into bikes,
4: but... Well, you know. I don't ride, so my story is very different, really. But um, when I was growing up in Sydney, all of my friends had bikes, and... Um, And like Brian's first girlfriend on the back of the bike, the motorcycle safety gear was a pair of shorts and a T-shirt and a pair of thongs and um, no helmet. Things have changed now, obviously, but I lived through those times and um, I've always loved travelling. And when when Brian started talking about going overseas on the bike, one thing I didn't want to do was just chuck in our life in Australia because we did both have... um, good jobs and we've got family and but what we decided to do was take a grown-ups gap year so we took a year off and um it was the best thing we've ever done you know shipped the bike to england and rode home basically and it uh, just gave us a taste and a bit like grant and susan we've done a lot of the world but we've done it in bits and pieces
5: she left out a fair bit about that you know like i remember her talking about uh going for a ride telling her mother she's going down the beach jumping on the back of a bike riding it to a raceway um, uh, with uh, a boyfriend stripping the glass off the bike, racing it, and then coming back with her hair in a big knot and telling mum it was very windy down at the beach.
4: Yeah, Yeah, my mother was fairly gullible, I'm afraid, (laughs) unless she just made me think that I was smarter than her.
0: (laughs) Cheryl, why why did you never want to get your bike licence? Why has that not been something that's come up for you?
4: Um, I don't even ride a bicycle. I know it's sad, but it's true. (laughs) I can't ride a bicycle. Something. um, Come on, seriously, everybody can ride a bicycle. You've you've never ridden a bicycle. No, not everyone can. No, and nor can my brother. Really, so it's a a family thing.
5: I've tried and tried and tried to say, Uh, "Come (laughs) on, get off get off your bum and have a
4: crack," you know. And and the first (laughs) the first time uh, the first trip we did in two thousand and three. We actually discussed the fact that we could um, carry more luggage if we had two bikes, um, which I know is something we might talk about later, But um, and we talked about me learning to ride and it wasn't something I wanted to do particularly, but I thought if it would make it the trip um, better in some way, I would consider doing it. But then we talked about it and Brian realised he'd either be worried about what I was doing behind him. Or watching me in front of him, terrified about what I was doing. So it was much easier for both of us if I just sat on the bike, and knew exactly where I was. And um, I, it didn't worry me in the least. I have no desire to learn to ride. I just think I'd be a menace to myself and others. So I'm happy being opinion, very happy. And one thing Susan Johnson taught me was you never say I'm just opinion. I am Absolutely. Opinion. <laughs> yeah.
5: Yeah, yep. and, Very and, important and, job. And, that's it right. And, and the other thing we did is, um, my, my Shirley was on, I think, on radio or television at that stage, and um, the super were on down at Phillip Island, which is a beautiful spot to go, and the weather was nice, and I had a, uh, a raucous, loud, um, semi-sports bike. Uh, and I said to Shirley, it's a beautiful day. Let's go for a ride down to um, Phillip Island. She said, yes. So we get down there and we discussed how wonderful it was to be open and free on the road again um, as a couple. And she said, well, look, if we're going to do it, and we're going to do long distance, let's get a comfortable bike. So the, the compromise was to get a comfortable bike, um, which is what we did. And then one of our first trips was over to the wineries and in South Australia. And, um, yeah, we just uh, really took to it from there on. We've been travelling ever since.
4: But I, I, he did... Um He really didn't have a car and when we were first going out together, I was on television as a news reporter and I used to have to get up in the, you know, dress in the frock and and, uh, look presentable. And he used to run me into town to my office on the bike in the middle of winter and I'd get there and my knees were blue. I was so cold (laughs) and trying to get over helmet hair so your hair looked presentable enough to go on television was quite a stressful experience. So I was kind of glad when he finally relented and bought a car. (laughs)
5: <laughs> that's, that's, that's a true story. So she says she's not adventurous, but
4: she really is.
0: Yeah, I, I can't resist digging about this bicycle thing. So you've actually tried to ride a bicycle and you can't keep it upright?
4: Uh, look, once or twice I've tried. Um, and no, I can't keep it upright. And where I grew up in Sydney, it was very hilly and very few of my friends had bicycles. We, My brother didn't have one. My sister, who was a little bit older um, and We lived in a different place when she was a kid. She learnt to ride. But Alan and I, who are now in our later part of our lives, we have survived quite well without riding a bicycle. It's not something that we fret about. It does worry other people like you, Jim, as to why this would happen in someone's life. But it's not something that we feel is all that important, really. But you walk okay, right?
2: I walk fine.
6: Well, wow. Just
4: unless curious. I've got the unless I've got the wobbly thong on, but yes, of course I walk okay. The wobbly
0: thong.
5: I uh, <laughs> <laughs> just
0: all sorts of images. There
3: there are, something
5: oh, to do with the, with the red wine that that uh, Graham's drinking. Yeah. Her story about getting <laughs> her car at license is another thing. She never had a car. Do we license.
4: have to? Do we have to continue yes, yes, with baby me? Yes, Come we on.
5: do. um,
4: When we're in the divorce court, I am going to (laughs) claim Adventure Rider Radio, okay?
0: I I think we should record it.
5: (laughs) (laughs) She she was on television. She had um, um, plenty of money, uh, but no car license. She goes and gets her car license at age 27, I think it was. And uh, she went into a brand new showroom, a Toyota showroom, and said, I like that color. Could I have that one? And, of course, the salesman said yes.
4: And um, They had meant, to deliver it because I didn't actually it. have my license at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, enough about me. Let's talk about you guys. Surely you guys have done something equally as stupid.
0: Well, so then you, I'm just going to have to back up again here so, with your story. So you guys decided that you're not going to take two bikes, you're going to ride together. So how do you get all your, your stuff onto one bike?
4: Well, oh. it's it's always oh. a work in progress. Even now when we've done, I don't know, 170,000 kilometres outside of Australia oh. on the bike, um, things that I think are important, Brian oh. thinks are really unimportant. He seems to think that spare parts are more important than stuff I want to take. So um, it's always a compromise. We have a, a lot of different things, but not much of anything in particular. Um, and you just sort of, lay everything out and try and fit it in the pannier and then pull half of it out and work out what you can live without and what you can't live without and just work on. It take, really is difficult.
5: You know, don't take one of those thief attractors.
4: Oh, God. That would be a, a bag, a, a handbag. handbag.
5: Thief attractors. It's, uh, I,
0: it's interesting to hear you say it's not easy.
4: No, it's not easy. It, it's... Um, And I'm sure um, Susan would agree that there are things that you have to do without or you have to jam things in. Um, Our friends Ken and Carol Duval, Carol as well as all the gear on the bike, has a satchel that she wears um, on her body, over her shoulder, on the motorcycle, and that has maps and um, I think their iPad and things like that in it. Well, I would find that really uncomfortable. But um, that's the way they fit a lot of their stuff in. But they carry a lot of more different things to us. They have a full kitchen, whereas we have very minimal cooking gear. Um, they always camp when we travel. Camping is not our number one um, form of accommodation. But when we take camping gear, it's just a, another different um, dimension of how much crap you've got to fit on a bike that uh, is not made to carry that much. Wow. Nine out of ten.
5: It, it, it does make it easier when you leave stuff behind like you did. Oh,
4: all right, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, here we go. I did, I did one day when we were leaving um, Sophia realise that I actually could pack my pannier a lot more um, organised, it was a lot better organised, and I thought, well, I've obviously done a much better job this morning, and when we got to the next um, place we were staying, I thought I'll just throw that washing through the sink and discovered that all my dirty clothes were still in the hotel in Sofia. And when you only have three T-shirts, leaving two of them behind is not actually a very good move. So um, that's why I could pack my penny a bag, half my clothes were in another hotel.
2: Susan and I have a standing joke on that one. Every time I say, well, that was easy, she says, what'd you leave out? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There it's is always, always.
0: There is something about motorcycle yeah. luggage that seems to—it's it, always full. It, at least it is for me. It, it's always full. It's like no matter how much I try and pare things down, I'm always running full.
3: It's like trying to Jim, do a three D jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Always. You're riding yeah. the Battlestar
5: Galactica, Jim. You, you, you fill
0: that up, do you? <laughs> My bike. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No problem. I have I have two small panniers on it, and and the and the tank bag. And I mean, I I'm I'm a light camper. I'm a light traveler. But I mean, I always seem to have my bags full. I mean, the reason I know this, it's like I need need something to tell me, is when I go to get food, I have to limit my food.
2: Yeah. We always try and make a point of leaving a couple of inches in a box so that there is room for food. But it took us a long, long time to get to the point where we could actually pare down our gear enough that there was actually spare room. But, uh, in the beginning, we just had a spare backpack, uh, like a daypack thing, and that's where all the food went, and it got strapped onto the top of the box, which got to be a little ridiculous. But we eventually but more important, down.
4: more importantly than leaving space for food, you need to leave space for shopping. When you buy those trinkets that your life yeah. is never going to be complete without, I always make sure there's room on the bike for shopping that'll just hold enough until we get to the post office and I can send it home. Persian rugs. you yeah, worked out well, how to get Persian rugs home. Yep. There's space in a saddlebag for a Persian
2: rug. Hmm. Well, no. <laughs> no. not ex-
4: <laughs> No, we did buy a small carpet in Turkey, which we strapped to the back of the bike for about four days until we could get to the post office. <laughs> that was well, a bit tricky. We have, we have
5: a friend who actually um, bought a... Right, like where was he in um, Iran? I think, and um, he couldn't pay for it. But the shopkeeper said, well, take it, and uh, when you get out of the country, transfer it to transfer the money to my account." With you know, people do that sort of stuff too. Wow! So well, if you can um, squeeze stuff on, you do,
4: don't you? You do, yeah. Yep. And we yep. always travel with a little bit of food, not much.
2: Yeah, you always have to have at least enough. To get you over till the next day, if the bike breaks in the middle of nowhere, you don't want to be completely without, so you go hungry. I was just gonna well, say,
0: Graham when... is, is traveling right now with his girlfriend, and this is this is a, a new traveling setup for you. So, how are you fitting it all in, Graham?
1: Not very well. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> because the reason I asked this is because you know Shirley and
0: Brian are talking about you know working through years, and, and Grant and Susan they've worked it out through the years. Uh, what are you doing on the first trip? This is the first
1: one, isn't it? Yeah, we did a little mini trip last week for camping, and that was pretty difficult. But today, because it's we're going away for a few days, uh, and it was it was a bit like uh, like Shirley was saying, it was going all right. And I think, no, oh, we've got some spare room in this panya. And then I realised I didn't have my sleeping bag packed yet. <laughs> <laughs> Minor detail. <laughs> and what about her sleeping bag? <laughs> well, also she hasn't got the. Most compact motorcycle-friendly stuff. So a sleeping, the roll mat's the size of a sleeping bag, and the sleeping bag's big as well. So that's taken up one pannier, right there. And I mean, we haven't got any cooking equipment at all. And so I was just thinking. I mean, we, it's it's in in a in a top box and, and two hard panniers at the side, and then a tank bag with just you know the the valuables in and the electronics and what have you. And I can't. It's not gracefully packed. I mean, it's the first day, but. I, I've got, I've got my list of, of everything I take with me usually and I always make a list when I unpack my panniers at the end of a trip and there is nothing, there is no tools there's no spare parts, I haven't got any of that stuff but I'm absolutely at capacity so you know which made me think how on earth do you matter? I mean I've always thought you know you've got if you've got a pillion then you've got twice as many people and half as much space. I managed to fill my panniers. I haven't got any haircut products with me, nothing. Oh, so no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm
5: surprised but, you left. But, but, Graham. I'm not going to be able to do it. I tell you, you, I'm not going to be able to do a, a f- thing with
1: it by Friday.
5: <laughs> but, <laughs> when, you, when you have a pillion, mate, you don't need as many tools because you've got someone to push. for <laughs> <laughs> See?
1: <laughs> True.
4: Note that down yeah. for the divorce court. Just chord. make
0: sure your pillion yeah. has a good pair of
1: shoes. Then you will be good. <laughs> we haven't even got. Yeah, we we haven't so, got, even got that many pairs of shoes. We've got no waterproofs on. So, like I say, everything is self-contained within the panniers. There's no dry bags or anything on strapped on the pannier lids. But nevertheless, and it's kind of funny. Got to the hotel tonight because well, obviously we had to get a hotel because we needed Wi-Fi to do the show. And found something on Booking.com. Got it's so easy, isn't it? We're sitting in a restaurant, use Wi-Fi, go on Booking.com. Find something with uh, parking and Wi-Fi. We get here. The bike's parked on the street. And the Wi-Fi don't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's but, true. So so, 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 anyway, get the rings. What, what do you need? Bringing off the bike, and it's like, oh, just those three, those three, what, are those three panniers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: So um, you soon learn to, to you soon learn to put the things that you need to take into the hotel on the top of the panniers so you're not always taking the tyre pliers and other things that Brian yeah. seems to think are essential. Okay, so the tyre
5: pliers live in your pannier. That's okay. Uh, um, yeah. uh, uh, with the other thing you can do if you're travelling uh, with a pillion is make sure you travel with someone else so you, they can take some of your pillion's gear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, uh, we did a trip across Australia uh, with a bait uh. and um, – he had this new girlfriend and uh, we're going to take this ride across Australia and he has a uh, Honda Blackbird, which is not really a pannier-friendly bike um, and he had a one of those gear sacks and he told her to pack light. Well, as we're waiting to leave, he arrives and he's in a filthy mood. She has packed that much stuff. He's had to throw half his clothes out, including the biggest hair I've ever seen, Graham and um
4: and she had a makeup bag oh, my, oh, that yeah. was enormous and every day we traveled for about 3 weeks every day there was a drama about the makeup bag and how he couldn't <laughs> fit it on the bike and could someone else take it so we had a bit of a roster going yes, to it. take the the makeup <laughs> bag um so it wasn't always one person being burdened with it and I should just add, as a rider to that conversation, they are no longer together.
5: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But um, we were sitting having a coffee at a service station, and his bike was that heavy and overloaded with this huge gear sack. We was sitting there watching it, and as the spring unwound on the, you know, as you get off the bike, sometimes the spring just unwinds a little, the bike overbalanced off the side stand and flipped over the other side. Was so so top heavy.
3: That didn't go down oh, no, well either.
4: Too happy about no. that, Sam. Are you
0: guys, I was just... going to say, Sam, you've done some two-up travel.
3: Yeah, I have um, several times actually, but um, not long, long, long distance really. I was just thinking as you guys are talking about that photograph that's going around on, on the internet at the moment, the one with the um, the suitcase panniers oh, yes. and the suitcase tank bags yeah. and the suitcase top box, and it's just a gem of a shot, isn't it? And somebody actually really is travelling that way, aren't they? But they're solo.
4: Yeah, that's, that always track. amazes me when you see people like that and they're on their own and everyone hangs shit on us about how much we take. Well, you know, when you think there's two of us, we do pretty well.
1: Yeah. Well, come on, they're on their own. Would you ride with someone like that? <laughs> no, good point. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> good point.
3: Yeah, so, um, my first experience of travelling um, two up on the bike was in Africa. Um, I'd, I'd met an American guy called John, and um, he, myself, um, two Aussie girls and a couple of Israeli guys, we'd hired a four-by-four four together so that we could go into the game parks in Kenya. And um, John and I had just gotten so well, I said to him, look, do you, you want to come pillion with me? So um, that was the first experience of... Um, having somebody else's luggage but you know we were just in the position where John um, could leave most of his gear in the um, mama roaches as it was that you know where we were staying at the time in Nairobi and uh, so he just had lightweight gear on the back and the biggest problem with John was that he was six foot four tall so it didn't matter how much his luggage um, space took up there was an awful lot of body space and weight taken up but my next experience with it was um, in Australia um, I'd you know, I was traveling on a fairly tight budget, and I wasn't sure if I had enough money to get back to Europe um, through Asia. So I'd been hunting around for someone to travel back with, and alas that um, I'd, who actually, funny enough, yeah, one of the Aussie girls on this um, on this trip, John, um, as I was thinking about, um, yeah, actually, she'd be kind of fun um, to share the ride with. Um, she was thinking, well, actually, I wouldn't mind going across Asia on a motorcycle. I wonder whether Sam wants a pillion passenger. Um, so as soon as that happened, well, it was a case of, right, okay, got to seriously think about how I'm going to carry two people's luggage. And at the time, I had the bog-standard basic BMW plastic um, panniers, the ones that open round the middle. And these things were just trashed, you know. Um, I'd fallen off on them, on them so many times, and they were held to- together with duct tape and cable ties, and they certainly weren't waterproof anymore. And I went to stay with... Um, The grandfather of a friend of mine, and um, he sort of took one look at these panniers and he said, "Mate, you're not riding on with those. Um, We've got to do something about it." So um, we went out to his garden shed, which was uh, more than the size of um, a a double car garage, and uh, we got a scrap of paper out and he said, "Come on, let's let's design you some panniers." So thinking about carrying two people's luggage and thinking about where we were going across Asia. Um, thinking that I wasn't going to be travelling particularly quickly so I didn't have to worry too much about dropping the bike into corners and things like that. We designed the panniers so that um, they were a little bit wider than the BMW ones, but they were a lot deeper. Um, And I could get away with the depth because, you know, we weren't going to be whizzing around corners. How many times are you going to do that in Asia? Um, And that made a huge difference. Um, but Jan, because she was an experienced traveller, she didn't have an awful lot of gear anyway, and that helped. Um, I think one of the biggest things that um, took up space for her were her spare Dr. Martin boots and her tarot cards. Um, uh,
4: spare Dr. Martin boots?
3: See, mm.
5: that, that sounds to me like a great pickup line rather than just a travel story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering if the guy named John was the that hooker that he found with the Adam's apple.
6: <laughs>
3: Funnily enough, I saw John a couple of weeks back in the States and um yeah, he's definitely got an Adam's apple, but the dreadlocks that he had in those days don't exist anymore. <laughs> but the next time I had to do it was um was Birgit. And Birgit flew out to Nepal and um, Jan and I were no longer travelling together. She'd fallen in love with a Thai guy. So um our ways had parted and um yeah, so there was Birgit and she rolled off the plane with the tiniest little rucksack um, and my eyes just lit up for two reasons, A, seeing Birgit and B, seeing how much luggage she didn't have. Um, She (laughs) She just
4: ruins it for the rest of us. Oh, sure. You need
3: need, need to meet this girl. (laughs) Well, I I mean, it does help that she's only five foot tall because that means that all the clothes that she carries are a lot smaller too.
4: (laughs) Well, I'm not exactly nine foot 15 and 300 pounds.
3: (laughs) How tall are
4: you? Um, five, six and a half, five, seven, five six, something like that.
3: Yeah. So so only six inches worth of clothes more.
4: Yeah. But I probably don't uh, carry as light.
3: <laughs> Is Birgit there? Um, she's around somewhere in the back. I'm not quite sure where.
0: I was just going to say you should get her to say hello because, uh, you know, many listeners question whether Birgit even exists, and I thought this could be a time to, <laughs> you know, just end that <laughs> right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> well,
3: I'll, I'll see whether she's around. Uh, I think she's gone it's... to bed. Hang on a second. Oh, I will be back. Oh, sure, oh. soon. Yeah, this is good. I like this.
4: Now, this come is, back. This is
1: where he yeah, runs down to the street and grabs a student. <laughs> walking Just as long as it's female, it'll sound right. My name's Sam. <laughs>
0: Act like you know me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can you put a German accent? <laughs>
4: Cool. Hello, everybody. Hello. Oh, hello. Hey, <laughs> At last. Is this Burger? <laughs> yes. It is such
0: a pleasure to meet you. My name's Jim. And, and, Hi, Jim. And, and, I'm and the rest of us here, there's Shirley. Hi, Shirley. Brian's in there. Hi. Grant. Hello, Brian.
4: Hi, oh, here. Graham. Hi, Graham. Hi, Burger. Hey Darren. Fine. So oh, lovely
5: fine. to hear your voice and know that you actually exist, Birgit. That's fantastic.
4: Well, well, you only know it's a voice. I could be anybody. <laughs>
5: <laughs> See, that's
0: why I want to have a bit of a conversation. I want to make sure Sam's not doing, you know, that where you type in the message into the computer and it speaks the words back at us. I just want to make sure that we're really not getting let along here. <laughs>
4: you type that no, Sam's
1: inhaling helium. <laughs> <laughs>
6: No, I do actually exist
1: well
0: that's that's really good to hear and, and I'm sure a lot of listeners now will be happy because we've we've seen that question come up a fair bit actually <laughs>
6: <laughs> shall I pass you back to Sam
0: very good nice to meet you
6: hi okay. there Bye. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye. are you guys all satisfied now yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, you
6: I mean, did-
0: there, there was someone who suggested, I don't know who it was, Graham, um, that you might run down the road and pick up somebody or just maybe open the door and grab the neighbor.
3: As if I worked. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: well, actually, you to did Graham, very actually. well to, to, to snag her as impromptu um, fashion as that because she's been saying, no, 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 I, I, I couldn't do it. I don't want to go on, etc. cetera. So, um, yeah, a uh, very cool. Nice one.
0: Back to what we were talking about there with, with packing, with all of us uh, packing with other people on the bikes. Um, tips. If if we could all maybe just throw in a couple of tips each um, to help people figure out how on earth you can pack all your crap in, let alone if you're by yourself, but certainly if you have a pillion rider with you.
2: Number one would be just take less stuff, of course. That's always the first thing. We always, the, the worst of it is you go into a camping store and you see all this wonderful stuff on the wall And you think they make it, so therefore I must need it. Subconsciously, maybe, but I must need it. But you actually don't. It's quite amazing how little you actually do use. And uh, the other one that I always work on is if I can fit it into half a pannier, then okay, that's my clothing clothing supply for the entire trip. (laughs) It's very, very minimal. And we put everything into stuff sacks, just little nylon bags drawstrings on them, or small duffel bags that are very, very lightweight nylon, and we use the lightest nylon possible. uh, It's amazing how lightweight nylon stuff lasts. Uh, The trend these days for backpacking gear always seems to be, the word I keep hearing in the stores here anyway, is, oh, it's bomb-proof. It's bomb-proof. Yeah, it's really bomb-proof. I don't care. I'm not climbing Everest with it. I'm going to put it in a saddlebag, and all it's got to do is stay intact, so the very lightest fabric I can get uh, to make it minimal. But the idea with stuff sacks is that everything's in a stuff sack. You can grab all those strings and pick it all up in one go. Or now I'm actually using uh, Touratech makes pannier liners. So you've got this nylon bag that everything fits inside. It fits the, the pannier exactly. And open the lid, grab the straps, lift it out, walk into the hotel. You're done. Everything's unloaded. So it's really, really quick and easy. This idea of stuffing loose things like bits of electronics and bits of clothing into various empty corners in the middle of your pannier. Loose is just drives me insane. It's it's way too hard to deal with. So stuff sacks uh, makes it a lot easier. One large pannier bag makes it easier. And, And we do everything by color. Susan's clothing bag is gray. Mine's blue. Smart. The time to go out Time to stop at the side of the road and go into the bushes time. That's the purple bag. Now, things like that make it so much easier. And it just makes life a lot simpler to to deal with. Um, so keep it light, keep it simple, and put everything into stuff sacks. And everything's color-coded.
4: The, the tip I would give um, is make things – I mean, this is a girl thing, and you're talking about clothes – things that match and things that you can wear – in layers and so you're not having to wear take you know two pairs of jeans because you want one blue one black or whatever take one pair or a pair of cotton pants that double as shorts or um, a long skirt that you can roll up and wear as a short skirt when it's really hot or wear as a long skirt when you're somewhere where you need to be modest like in certain parts of Asia and the Middle East and um, things that Will wash and dry on a pegless clothesline in a hotel room overnight, or hung up across a tree in a in a campsite, and will dry in a in a short period of time. The, that sort of um, mix and match gear and easy to wash gear makes life a hell of a lot easier and doesn't take up as much room. And sometimes you do need to go and buy that really expensive um, jumper from the camping store that is three times what you would normally spend for a a jumper, but it's going to keep you a lot warmer and it's a lot more lightweight. Uh, So sometimes you do need to go that extra yard. It's like the camping gear that Grant was talking about and, and Graham earlier with sleeping bags and things. You can get a really good, warm sleeping bag that's quite a reasonable price, but it is going to be the size of a pannier. And if you're going to travel two up, you need to have everything that's miniature, everything that packs down so... It's going to be a really expensive sleeping bag because it's got to be one that will still keep you warm but compresses down to a size that doesn't take up your whole pannier.
2: Yeah, I've been really impressed with the uh, amount. We've actually reduced our gear since we were traveling back in the 90s. Um, Our sleeping bags now are less than half the size of the ones we had then, and they're just as warm, and they're both down. But the new down is a higher quality down, the fabric's lighter. It's just amazing how small they are.
5: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah our, our sleeping bags are great. But uh, getting back to panty liners, um, mm. I, uh, I I've always uh, used panty liners because there's nothing worse than getting out to your bike, uh, say where Graham's parked out in the street, and it's a windy day, and your dirty undies fly down the street as you're trying to stuff them <laughs> into a <the> panty. <laughs>
6: yep. so you're better off trying to
5: pack them into a um, a panty liner bag. But be warned. Um, don't buy pannier liners that are bloody waterproof and even and that because they are so bulky and take up a yeah. lot of room.
1: You're better it's off. This those. is it, Brian. Of course, my panniers came with pannier liners, and I looked at them, and they are waterproof ones. And I thought they, on their own, if you rolled them all up, all three of them, they would absolutely f- – so you wouldn't be able to fit all three of them in your tank bag. Yeah, yeah that's exactly,
5: exactly right. yeah. I, I got the the BMW ones for the 1150 GS, which are, are vinyl, and I, I looked at them and I thought, no, no, that's all wrong. Yep. And um, we resorted. We actually had some aftermarket ones made, cloth ones made, which are quite sturdy, you know, strong, strong material, and they've been fantastic.
4: Yeah, and like the Touratech ones, they fit perfectly. the The that's got the cutout, it's got a little pocket on the side that fits over the cutout, so you oh, can put you, little you bits in this. You mean the piece. smaller
5: pannier, which is mine? Correct. Yeah, right.
0: and <laughs> I is, don't if know if wa-
4: there's an argument on this.
0: If you need to waterproof it, you just throw a plastic bag in it, like garbage bag. Exactly,
4: exactly. That's and that's right. what we that's do. Right. One of our panniers does leak, which is my pannier, and I just put a big garbage bag in the bottom of it, so... It keeps the um, the pannier bag from, from that, getting wet. That's because you try to put so much stuff in it. That's oh, right. For it. goodness' sake. Here we go. Back to the divorce court.
0: You've broken <laughs> the aluminum pannier by overstuffing it?
4: No, I haven't broken it. <laughs> Don't listen it's to just him. Bloody <laughs> it's bloody warped. It's not warped.
3: <laughs> Brian, stop taking advantage of Shirley. She's poorly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yes. Good point.
0: Thank
5: I'll, you. I've got to get in as quickly as I can because you know how sharp. What did she use? <laughs>
0: yes. mm-hmm. We do. Any other tips? <laughs> well, Shirley you
3: know said one can... earlier yeah. on. And, uh, sorry, go on, Shirley. No,
4: no, you,
3: you go. You go. said one earlier on and that was compromise. And um, when Birgit and I are heading off um, two up on our bike now, then it is always a compromise. Um, and we always try to look for, for things that have got two uses. So, Um, For example, our ground sheet, um, you know, doubles up as um, a a shade if we, we, you know, want some extra shade. Um, And we always travel with layers because that way you're not packing things that are specific one use type of gear.
4: Um,
3: And, you know, by having quite a few thin layers, well, you know, you've got them on and you've got the choice and you can layer up and they don't take that much space as individual items. Um, And I love your idea of getting um, souvenir um, sweaters and things like that as you go because, well, you can travel for months and months and months with fleeces and all the rest of it and never wear them. Um, And sometimes what we'll do is we'll um, think about where we're going next and if we're going to be travelling in countryside that we know is going to be hot for four or five months and we've got nice quality um, fleeces and other things that we don't want to get rid of, then we'll just post them on and um, we'll pick yep. them up somewhere yep. else six months later. and
4: You need to think outside the square. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And yep. uh, sometimes that's not so easy because there are things that um, you would think my life is not complete unless I have this particular item. But when you're actually on the road, you can live without it. Yep. But I would just like to say that while I can pack down to a pannier, despite what Brian says, and, and, and I can live without so many things when we're travelling on the motorbike, Give me a car, I can fill the boot for a weekend away. I can take four (laughs) pairs of shoes, I can take everything known to man and it's just what you're allowed to take, what space you've got, you can fill it.
5: Uh, I've seen bikes loaded down with tyres and things like that and I I scratch my head and wonder why. I mean, you can buy motorcycle tyres anywhere in the world. I don't
4: know, I don't understand
1: why you would have to take spare tyres with you. I think he's talking to you, Graham. Yeah, I carry <laughs> also. Why? Yeah, uh, insurance, well, okay, it was on my first trip when I did it. I was going through Kazakhstan and Mongolia. I was riding solo. As you well know, I don't do a lot of research. It didn't seem to me that it would be a very popular <laughs> place for getting tyres. And also, yes, they are available anywhere. I would agree with that, but not necessarily terribly good quality tyres. Oh, no, that's only, exactly but, right.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And the only thing between you and the road is the quality of the rubber. So I I, I didn't regret doing it. They were a pain in the ass. I haven't done it since, but I wouldn't actually poo-poo to people who take a good spare pair of tyres with them. Yeah. They are a pain in the ass, but equally but, they are. An
5: but, like, what, short do you, what do you need? It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's black and it's round and it holds air. That's
1: basically all you need, really.
4: And that's oh, what we bought know. in Russia. I don't want to get to the whole tire
1: debate. I mean, any <laughs> giant on debate any forum about tires is going to be an endless thread, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, it goes on forever. Um, I have <laughs> I a story you- about the guy who I was traveling with in South America. We got to, I think it was Quito, and he needed a front tire pretty badly. So we went to the BMW dealer. And the BMW dealer had a tire, which would have been perfect. It was Michelin or something like that. And the, But the price was too high. He wouldn't pay it. He says, too much, too much. I'll go to the uh, the free zone uh, another couple of hundred kilometers up the road, and I'll get tire there. Well, we went to the free zone, and yes, they had tires, and they were round and they were black. But that's about all I can say about
3: them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they were really poor, and they still weren't that cheap.
3: <laughs> yeah, I carry yeah, spare yeah. tires got- from time to time. You know, well, if I – um, when you're traveling on a budget, you know, if you've still got maybe a thousand miles left on a tire and you've just found a place where you can buy um, a new tire, well, I'm not going to take the tire that's still got a thousand miles on it off. Um, I'll carry the spare tire for that thousand miles. Um, maybe sure. I'm just tight.
2: No, I think that makes complete sense. But starting off with a spare set of tires, I think is just. I've, I've carried a tire for, I don't know, about four days. I'll never do it again. Forget it. It's just way too much hassle, too much aggro. It's too heavy. It's a pain in the neck. Um, I just don't want to deal with it. There's always so what, somewhere you can buy a tire. You just have to plan when are you going to replace those tires. That's well, not, you can well, do I'll, that.
3: I mean, I coming across Pakistan, for example, um, I'd put my um, my spare front tire on um, because, yes, I've been carrying and the old one was worn out. And so I put the new one on. And um, 250 miles later, I have a front tire blowout that literally rips the side out of my brand new tire. Um, so, with duct tape and cable ties, I held the tire back, I, I strapped the tire back in place because there was nowhere, anywhere within hundreds and hundreds of miles where I was going to get anything to, to fit a 21 inch front wheel. And I ended up riding, I don't know, a 1,000 miles with this setup until I could eventually find one in Iran. And I found one for a 250cc trail bike. Um, but that was all I could find. And, you know, an 800cc, fully loaded BMW. I wasn't sure if I wanted to put a 250cc trail bike tire on the front, but that was all I could get. And it was sure, beat the living daylight. Like out of the one with the blister on the side. Um, yeah. Duct tape yeah. doesn't last very long when you're driving over it.
4: Um, we should add that those are two essentials that even I won't argue with. You must carry duct tape and you must carry table, cable ties, or your bike yep. will fall apart and you won't be able to fix it.
2: Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I
4: haven't yeah, got room I for either good. of those two this week. <laughs> You've got room for zip ties, Graham. You've got room for zip
1: ties. What have you
0: learned on the inaugural trip?
1: Um, well, it's only the first day. Um I don't think I've learned anything. So it's pretty much like every other trip.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I sense a book coming on.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Talk your books. Talk your books, Shirley, the next book that you guys do. um, With with Brian's propensity for um, comments, I think you should call it um, The Art of Living Dangerously or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's
4: a good idea. Thanks, Sam.
3: Oh, you're welcome.
0: Hey, now, this, this is the first time we've done this, but we're just going to take a, a short commercial break and then we're going to come right back. Afterwards, we're going to talk about um, I Can't Believe I Rode Through That, some of the, the worst things that we've ridden through, where they were, and, and how we dealt with them.
1: It's summertime and the living is easy. What you doing? Going on vacation? Going for a ride? It's gonna rain, it's inevitability. That unplanned premature stop in some shitty motel to dry out your clothes and wait for the skies to clear. What you need is a good book to read. Or maybe you can't afford to go away, sitting at home watching too much porn. Well, let me recommend some pages you can get stuck into. You've heard me voice. Now is the perfect opportunity to read my words. Let me take you if I may, on a journey. Inexperienced, challenged, unsupported. Equipped with pure determination. KLR650 mega means a solar ride of 15,000 miles from the UK to see what will break first. My body, my bike or my budget. A journey to Mongolia and unintentionally beyond. In search of happiness, in search of contentment. I was in search of greener grass. Graham Field scares me shitless. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. This dude has all the answers. William Shakespeare, thou dost talk too much. Buy it now from grahamfield.co.uk, mention Raw at the PayPal checkout, and receive a 20% rebate off the cover price. I can offer this like dope dealers give away the first hit for free, because I know you'll be back for another book.
0: That concludes the commercial <laughs> message.
5: Wow. <laughs> well done, uh, Graham.
1: I'm
4: in of that. If I didn't already have the books, I'd be buying them as soon as we got off air.
3: <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah, it Very took like four impressive.
1: takes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only four. I'm impressed. So that's the, the that's first com- commercial message. We're, we're not charging Graham for it, um, just so that you guys know not? that.
1: <laughs> why not?
4: Jack, i he gets one for free. Because oh, I? I
1: asked first. <laughs> well, Thinking actually, outside the
2: box, Graham. To, good to, to you. be fair,
0: what Graham said is how much would an ad cost? He was inquiring as to how much it would cost him to run an ad and sort of break the ice and and maybe get some other advertisers in here. But I said, no, we can't charge you for an
4: ad. We can't. That's charge very it, noble of you, Jim. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I and that it. was bloody good, Graham. Yeah, we couldn't get an actor either.
0: So. <laughs> <I laughs>
6: Who needs an it, actor me. when you've got right?
3: Graham Field? That's
6: <laughs> fantastic.
0: <laughs> so, I can't believe I rode through that. Some of the, the worst conditions you've ridden in, some of the, the worst places you've been into. You know what comes to mind is because I've been seeing some pictures um, recently. Oh, I know there was a book that was sent to us recently, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, that we got it and opened up and look at it. And it's got riding in Patagonia, dealing with the winds and bikes blowing over. And so I imagine that's probably going to rank up there. But let's start with Grant. Grant, what do you think is the worst place you've ridden in, the worst conditions that you've ridden in?
2: I've got two, I I think, that would stand up as being the worst. The uh, first worst one was the Caprivi Strip before it was paved. It was, if you can imagine, several hundred miles of horrible corrugations that are four or five inches high and just unbelievably difficult to ride. Bump, 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 bump. And I finally figured out that if I went fast enough, it would just sort of kiss the tops. And that was great. It worked really well until the corrugation stopped and the hundred meters of deep soft sand arrived. And here I'm doing 80 kilometers an hour and all of a sudden there's this huge sand wash. What do you do? You can't stop, so you just keep on going. And the bike started to wiggle and wobble, and Susan squealed, and I said, shut up, I'm busy. That's going <laughs> dangerously. Oh, is is, is yeah. that a true story, that last part? That's an absolute 100% <laughs> true story. Susan will corroborate it. <laughs> and she's since learned not to squeal when things get funny. Because <laughs> there was just this sharp, ah, in my ears. Oh, you've got comms well, on. Right. Oh yeah, we have intercom. Right. Always, always had intercom. That's that's um, the the path to sanity on a motorcycle trip. I think if you don't have intercom, the lack of communications or trying to communicate with punches in the ribs and things like that, it's, it's just not worth it. Comms make them much so what better. Do you, what do you do when you
0: hit that sand? You set you end up standing up.
2: No, no, you can't. You, we're we're too up. There's, there's no time. There's no possibility of standing up. So you just ride it. Just keep the throttle on, keep the speed going, and cross your fingers and pray. Mm-hmm. That's all we could do. And we hit about 10 of those on this trip. It was very scary. But the other option was unbelievable pain. And it would have taken us forever. We'd still be there trying to do it. It was ridiculous. You know, it was literally one mile an hour or... 50 miles an hour there was nowhere in between that worked so that was that was scary exciting fun <laughs> i don't know everything all rolled into one but it was quite an experience i'll certainly never forget it
3: Meeting especially that Grant, first i do. know i know exactly what you mean that's exactly what it was like when i rode it too um yep. and yeah it sounds to me like you guys got off a little bit better than i did because that was the road that um i got left in the the cloud of dust in and rode into um a yard deep pothole Oh, uh, oh yeah, wow. so that I, was the seventeen bone fracture incident, and um, oh. up until then, you know, the road was full-on challenge. But yes. actually, um, one up, it was quite manageable, and you were quite right about those um, corrugations because, um, and of course, they were all completely different spaces apart, weren't they? But weren't yep. some of them amazingly Buried. deep? But those sand washes um, just instantly there and really soft sand too. Hey, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, try it two up. It was not good. <laughs> yeah. did you finish the accurate. road, Sam? Um, I went back um, four years later to finish the bit that I did while I was in con- unconscious in the back of a truck. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. yeah that was a I really did. bad accident. Like you, you had glass in your eyes and all kinds of stuff, didn't you?
3: Yeah, I was. Um, if it wasn't for um, Peter and Edith, the German couple um, who had been in a four by four off out in the desert and had joined the track that I was on from a side track. And they were running a day late. If it hadn't been for them um, and for them running a day late, um, I would probably have lost my eyesight and, oh, goodness knows what else. But, yeah, that was 17 bone fractures worth of adventure. Um, yeah. but I met some great people as a result. But uh, I was determined that road yeah. wasn't going to beat me, so that's why I went and finished the rest of it.
2: Yeah, one of my rules is when there's dust is if I can't see – Within my comfortable, easy – and I mean comfortable, easy stopping distance, I stop, wait till the dust clears, and then ride on. I don't – I'm not in a hurry. I don't need to try and get there quicker, two minutes quicker versus a big crash. No, thanks. I'll, I'll wait. Just take your no, time.
3: Absolutely. It, it's, it's definitely right. And that was one of the things that I was thinking about after, um, you know, when I was able to think again. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that you know, it, it had happened because I I just happened to glance in my rearview mirror and there was a four by four tanking up with me behind me, really fast, big cloud of dust, and mm-hmm. it happened so fast I couldn't even get the thought process together. Oh, this guy's not slowing down like everybody normally does when they pass each other, yeah. and you know I didn't even have time to think that because he was just on me, past me, cloud of dust, and I just didn't see the whole.
2: Yeah, bad, bad, bad timing. That yep. sucks.
3: I'd yeah, slow down that time.
2: Yeah, it's tricky. Sometimes you have to go fast, though. That was the only thing that worked there.
3: Well, especially those soft sand sections. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I you tried riding the corrugations, and sometimes the front wheel was down in a, a corrugation, and the back wheel was on top of one, and um, yeah, um, ball breaking.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so th- now that road is paved. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no issue. So the adventure is gone in some parts of the world. Uh, The other one I wanted to talk about that was really nasty was the complete opposite. Caprivi was hot and dry and dusty and sand. The other one was El Nino in South America, mud and floods. We hit uh, the Atacama Desert, which is the driest desert in the world. And there was this giant lake there that didn't belong. And that was a, a really kind of a warning of something's not right here. So what's going on? Cause we had no clue what was going on. We hadn't been paying attention to the news or anything and get a little farther and the roads washed out and there's mud holes and there's swamps and people are pushing trucks and vehicles through the, through the mud. And it was just the worst conditions ever trying to ride through two up. Um, Susan walked a fair bit through some sections uh, there was mud everywhere. I would go for a walk to see what the situation was and learned what human dipstick means. If you fall in <laughs> up to your chest, it's not rideable. <laughs> it's too deep. Uh, so I did a little bit of learning there and got thoroughly muddied, and, and the bike ended up on its side at one point and Just mud everywhere, swamp everywhere. It was just terrible conditions. Uh, and the Pan American Highway was just washed out for a thousand miles and peru lost 500 bridges and ecuador lost a whole bunch more the conditions were just completely unrideable eventually um susan had a contract in canada and uh, we were we were trying to ride home quickly on the pan-american highway uh it wasn't happening we were averaging 20 kilometers a day trying to get through this stuff and it was really bad so she ended up flying home uh, so she could fill, get into this contract and actually make some money so we could afford to pay for fuel so the bike could keep moving. And I ended up riding through myself. But it was so bad that I ended up riding with Max, this other guy. And we kept going inland because the Pan-American washed out. I mean, it's un- impassable. There's nothing. There's no way anybody's getting through. So we kept going inland, turning toward closer and closer to the Amazon, following some semblance of road that was horrible. And just kept going farther and farther. We eventually crossed the Andes and on the Amazon or eastern side of the Andes, finally found a road that would get us north. And, and it wasn't good either. There were still bridges washed out in various places. Well, finally made it through, but that was two weeks of mud, deep uh, washouts all over the place. The number of bridges we saw washed out was just ridiculous. Everywhere you went, there was a washout landslides, got stopped by landslides in various places. Uh, the bulldozers were out remaking the road, and we had to wait for them to clear the road. It was, it was an epic adventure for sure. But finally got what, through.
3: What year was that, Grant?
2: That was uh, February, March of 98. Mm. A big um, El Ni- they have El Nino years, and then they have big El Nino years about every seven years, I think, something like that. Um, this year was another big El Nino year in South America, apparently, or was it last year? One or the other.
3: It's something that overlanders need to pay um, real attention to El Nino, isn't it? I mean, when we're sitting in Western countries and we might get a very small flash about it on the news, um, it's very, very difficult, um, to, to really describe exactly how bad it is. Um, just, I asked what year it was because Birgit and I, um, came in on the tail end of that too. Ah, and okay. um, just the, the devastation for the locals was absolutely unreal, wasn't it?
2: Oh, and that, yeah, there's um, pictures that just blow your mind. I mean, you, I, yeah. I've got a picture from the newspaper in a village. So you see these, it, it's fairly far back and you can see the road comes along. And then there's this hole right in the middle of town, more than the width of the street. So there's houses gone down and everything. This hole yeah. is probably 50 meters across and 50 meters deep. Right in the middle of the village, it's just gone. There's that was used to be a little tiny street. Not anymore. It's not. It's just gone.
3: Anybody who's travelled in South America will know that um, many of the um, the graveyards um, they're like apartment blocks inside, and each um, you know you you rent or buy your your own little apartment for your coffin to be put into. And with this El Nino, the floodwaters were so high and so strong that these were all being broken open and um, bodies and coffins were floating down streams and that sort of thing. And that lake that you were talking about earlier on, Grant, did, mm-hmm. you, um, did you hear that it actually had fish in it? And nobody really <laughs> understood where the fish had come from, but the, <laughs> the fishing… Oh, yeah, absolutely. The fishing was so devastated on the coast by El Nino um, because it changed all of the temperature of the currents um, and where the currents were flowing that they were putting fishing boats on the backs of trucks and carrying them up into the middle of Peru into the desert. um, And people were setting their fishing boats and catching fish in the middle of the desert. Amazing. Absolutely phenomenal.
2: Yeah. Like, where did that come from? Uh Sam? Sam?
3: Um, I think one of mine has to be um, the stupidity of riding through Iran and Turkey in the winter. Uh, It had taken me three months to get my visa um, for Iran. So I was absolutely in the wrong um, weather season there. And I never want to ride in snow um, at altitude again. Um, Just so cold, breathing out. My breath was freezing on the inside of my visor and so cold that the snow was freezing on the outside of my visor as soon as it, um, it landed. Um, and slipping around on black ice. Um, yeah, that's, I think, the scariest thing that I've ever had to do. I'd rather ride on um, soft sands than um, ride in those sorts of conditions. And of course, you know, and unless you've got really good heated gear, um, your body's shutting down and your brain's not thinking so quickly and all of the rest of it. And I didn't have any heated gear at all. I'd spent most of the last... I don't know, four years, traveling in hot countries. And I tried to get some some warm clothing, but um, I wasn't very successful, certainly not for dealing with those conditions. Um, that was absolutely horrible. Um, another one has to be the Moyali to Marzabit road. This is the road that runs from the border with um, Ethiopia and Kenya, and it runs down to Marzabit, which is the first town of any real consequence. Um, and when I rode it, um, this road was just a complete nightmare. In the dry season, massive potholes, some of them big enough to drive a a big truck into, Um, and um, they'd grade it. The first rains had happened, and the trucks had come through, and they'd just dig big gullies again. And uh, I was running late again. Um, Visa problems, sickness problems with people I was travelling with. And uh, the rainy season started the day that I got to the beginning of that road. And it was the road that I'd feared. I'd heard the scare stories and instantly, um, the clay turned to, um, slick, um, tires full of mud. Um, and the only way to ride this was to ride it fast so that you were flicking the mud out of the tread. Otherwise you just had no grip at all. It was literally like riding on racing slicks and, um, just, yeah, just horrible, complete nightmare road. But I tell you what, when I got to the end of it, and I'd had a decent night's sleep and cleaned my bike off. Um, I was so pleased that I'd actually managed to do most of it. I did actually have to put my bike on the truck for one, the last section of it. Cause I was completely exhausted. I got to the stage where I couldn't even keep the bike standing up, let alone ride it. Um, that was full tilt, hardcore, glad I've done it. I kind of like not to have to have to do it again. That road also has been asphalted. Now I hear what a shame.
0: I was going to say, what do, you, what do you think is the worst to ride in? You know, is it, is it the snow, the mud, the sand? What freaks you out the most?
3: Me, ice. Ice? I hate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's completely unpredictable. Um, you learn what to do with mud. You learn what to do um, with sand. But ice, you just never know what the bike's going to do. Um, you can't judge. Well, for, I can't. But maybe that's just because I try not to ride in the ice and therefore I've got no experience of it.
0: But you find mud somewhat predictable?
3: More so. Oh, yeah, I, agree
5: Brian? Oh, I agree with that. I, I think um, with mud, you know what you're going to You're going to get dirty and you might drop the bike, but if you've got ice on an asphalted road, it is so quick, as Sam says, so unpredictable, and uh, you just slide forever. And you can slide into the... the path of oncoming cars and all sorts of things. I, I'd much prefer to ride in sand or, or mud or anything like that. That's yep. um, just the way I feel about it. But, you know, we, we, the ride from Quetta to that when we did it in Pakistan was uh, a fairly horrendous ride, dust, bull, what we call bulldust, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about riding in corrugations and then coming across a soft patch. Well, that's bulldust. And, you know, we we get that everywhere in the outback uh, here. Um but you know, rocks, river crossings, and all that sand drifts. Sand drifts, yeah, yeah. We we had all of that in the, on that particular piece of road, which we thought would take us a day. It took us two days, and we had to camp uh, hidden behind, um, uh, well, actually near a cemetery because of the um, um, the inability for uh, foreigners to one travel at night and two uh, the danger of the area, but. Uh, that was pretty hard um, even the ride from Cusco to Nazca uh, cutting down the mountain in Peru uh, up the top it was just freezing cold and uh, it's a great ride but um, the snow and the sleet and the black ice up on top made it very treacherous and the one thing that I should have done is stopped and changed from my summer gloves to my winter gloves because my fingers were bloody freezing I'd have to put them on the on the um, the pots of the uh, BMW to warm them up. And, uh, yeah, that was that was an interesting ride of over 600 k's coming down the mountain. But, you know, you're going from Cusco, which was really quite pleasant, uh, to freezing cold weather and snow and sleet and ice, and uh, down to the Pacific Ocean where it was 30 degrees all in one day. Fantastic ride, but uh, difficult. And the other one was
4: tromoso to Scarsback going up to... Nordcap, Shirley, the wind. Oh, it was scary. It was really scary. Hanging on, trying to tuck in behind Brian, but it didn't matter where I tucked in, there was wind blowing us around. and but The okay. wind's unpredictable because mm. it'd
5: be blowing one way and it'd hit a rock face and bounce back at you and blow you the other way across the road. Um, and uh, Dave, who we're travelling with, who's a, a, a racer, he said it's one of the most dangerous riding he's ever done because uh, the, the wind factor blowing it all over the road.
3: I, the, the winds in Patagonia are um, notorious. Um, but this is, again, where a little bit of research uh, makes a difference because there are times of year where um, th- the wind isn't as strong. Um, I slipped a disc um, in my back riding the wind down through Patagonia. It was that strong. And because it was gusting, um, one minute you're leaning into the wind and the wind's holding you and the bike up and you might as well have been going around um, you know, a right-angle corner. Um, because you're leaning over so far, and then the wind drops and you have to heave the bike back up again, and you just do 100 miles, hundreds and hundreds of miles of of the wind doing this to you. Um, And if if things had worked out differently, we might have done it three weeks earlier, and the winds apparently at that time of year were about half the strength.
4: But even half the strength in that part of the world, the winds are really strong. And when we did it, lots of route of 40 was um, still gravel, yeah. And um, talking to some overlanders, they were saying, oh, the whole concept of this road is going to be changed when they when they seal it. Well, I don't agree. The, the winds, winds are still going right. to be there. It's still going to be a tricky part of the part of the world to ride with those crosswinds. But you
5: needed, with the crosswinds, you needed that. There's quite a wide piece of road down in the south there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you needed the whole width of the road because the wind yep. would just die on you. You'd be swerving left and right across the road, yep. um, travelling at about... 60 to 80 80 kilometres an hour is about my pace, I think, which was reasonable. But Ken and Carol Duval came off on that, and I think Ken broke his collarbone just because the wind um, got them out of
3: control. You were so glad that there was hardly any traffic, hey, because, I mean, that wind was just hammering you all over the place, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, that's right. If if there'd been a lot of traffic coming the other way, it would have made it an even more complex piece of riding. That's
0: where your bike load makes a huge difference too, doesn't it? I mean, you see people riding with heavy loads, especially on that stretch, and um, they end up running into all kinds of problems. They can't even can't even put the bike in the stand.
5: Oh, you yeah, know, I had to grab my bike uh, at one stage, and oh. we, we pulled up, and I parked it, uh, and I thought, yeah, that's okay. into the wind, and the wind shifted, and it was just about ready to blow the bike over sideways. It's that strong.
3: We used to find that if we were riding first thing in the morning, um, sort of five, six, seven, eight o'clock, then the wind was a lot calmer at that time of day. But by the time you got to 11 o'clock, it was it was full bore. And setting up camp at nighttime, we used to have to put um, guy the bike on the side stand um, and then we'd put guy lines from the bikes into the ground with um, good-sized pegs and rocks. Otherwise, the bikes would have been blown over. And putting up the tent was just so funny. Um, you know, we sort of lay it out and I'd sprawl over the middle and Birgit would feed the poles through and I'd still be sprawled over the middle. <laughs> and then we'd have to do it with the weight of my body holding the thing down until she could scurry around and get all the pegs in um, and all of the guy lines. And we'd put extra guy lines on because, yeah, otherwise we'd never made it through the night.
4: <laughs> that's when a hotel really comes into its
3: own. <laughs> oh, that's true. A hotel? I've heard about these things.
1: <laughs> Grant, what about you? What's your,
0: your worst conditions?
1: um well yeah wind as i've experienced which there's a there's a really s- the skinniest part of mexico to the north you've got the gulf of mexico and to the south is the uh, pacific ocean and there's a bit and there's nothing but wind farms all these wind farms and the it's because i think the wind or the whatever it is because it's the skinniest part of the wind is trying to get across land and i've done that road twice on different years and it is a constant wind but you are traveling at such an angle it's uh it really batters you but i think for extreme conditions uh obviously you know you you go through them all but i think one of the stories that comes to mind is is heat and because it's inescapable it's uh And one of my hottest uh, rides, uh, it was in Arizona, I'd been at the MotoGP in Laguna Seca, I don't know where that was, 2006, something like that. And we were riding back to Colorado. And it was, we were coming through Arizona. And it was middle of summer, it was July. Because yeah, because Laguna Seca was on July fourth, So it was sort of second half or sort of mid-July. And I remember riding, and as a, as a handyman, when I used to paint gloss paint, too much gloss paint in a room with the closed windows, and I started to have these sort of weird feeling and weird thoughts, and <laughs> I knew... I breathed in too many gloss paint fumes. And I was feeling like that riding through this, riding along this highway in Arizona. I thought I need to stop because I'm getting delirious now. I can't tell reality from fiction and uh, from hallucination. And we pulled off the highway, I was with a mate of mine, and we stopped at this little, uh, it was just like a little shop, little convenience store in the middle of nowhere. And I was, I mean, it's like 120 120 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And delirious from the heat and just sort of by instinct walked into the shop to go and get some water. And there was this old boy sitting on this bench outside of the the shop with this big white sort of cowboy hat on. And he said, you're in the desert here, boy. Said they think he said they say Phoenix is the desert, but that ain't a desert. He said it's 120 degrees here, this is the desert. And I thought, was that guy real? Was that even real?
0: <laughs> hey, you know, you're not supposed to do that with the paint thing, by the way, that that can actually affect your brain permanently. Just thought I'd put that uh, out that there. That would
5: explain a lot. <laughs> yeah. but I, was just, um, I was just wondering what weird feelings were for Graham. <laughs>
1: Total recall. (laughs) But um, the – and this is probably bleeding obvious, but not to me. I was talking to someone the other day about riding in intense heat, and he was saying a white helmet reflects it all. Mm. And I was thinking back and nostalgically thinking about every helmet I owned, and although I missed a few – they were all had one thing in common, they were all black. Not even a pattern on them. I've always had black helmets. And I suppose, I mean, it's not really an issue in, in the UK because nothing's very extreme, but even here in Bulgaria where you get, you know, 40 degrees Celsius days, it would make sense to have a helmet that reflects it rather than one that sort of, uh, what's the opposite to reflect? But anyway, one that sort of, you know, brings on the heat.
0: Absorbs, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but wouldn't a chrome helmet be the best then?
1: Yeah, if you're riding in 1970, Bali. A good chrome helmet
0: to to reflect the heat. I I think that's a good idea. Anyone else have anything to add to that?
4: One thing, um, everyone's talked about bad weather creating bad roads and bad wind conditions. One thing you really always need to look at is is the weather forecast. Just in general terms, you know, the first time we did, did a trip, we were going to ride from... Australia to England for the to go to the Isle of Man and because of the timing we would have left Australia in summer ridden through Asia in the wet season and hit Europe in winter which really didn't seem to be such a good idea so we did it in reverse and flew to England and came home through the european summer and hit australia in the in asia in the drier season and got home in the April. So you just need to think...
5: Our, of, first, of, our first wet day, I think, was in Malaysia.
4: Yeah. So, you, I mean, it was really hot in the UK, in Europe that year, but that's that's fine. But we avoided really, really bad weather and, and dangerous riding conditions by thinking about the weather and, and changing the trip around.
3: It's so important. I mean, you can almost ride around the world and stay in the summer um, or stay in the spring or fall or whatever. Yeah. Um, you can stay away from the rainy season, you can stay away from the winter um, until something goes wrong and stuffs it up. But that's that's such a great ambition. Why would you want to travel in conditions that are, are, are difficult and uncomfortable when you can be travelling when it's beautiful and interesting? Mm, yeah. I agree. Exactly, Sam.
4: So. Can I just say something here? Um, how different an experience has been with Graham having a girlfriend with him and because the first bottle of wine spilt on the floor of the room <laughs> perhaps has been more sobrieous than normal
1: <laughs> <laughs> we can tell you're a journalist yes. <laughs> so I just learned well, something today
4: <laughs> no that's probably I probably made that word up but um he just seems a little... Oh, a, a little more my, grown yeah, up arm
1: or so. Yeah, I've got to have an air responsibility about me. And i and also, all she's she's not hearing you, she's only hearing me. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, it's hearing it out. And of now that you've
4: said that. Now that you yeah. know that, she knows She's, we're talking about her. I know.
3: Put, put down the book that she was reading. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys were talking to Berger earlier on, of course, I couldn't hear a word of what was being said. That was oh, awesome. that's just as well. So.
1: You'll hear it afterwards, Sam. <laughs> So, yeah, it's it a little, it, I've got an audience of one and it is a little, I suppose it is a little um, intimidating. Because <laughs> more than we normally have, isn't it?
4: <laughs> <laughs> so how long are you on this trip for, Graham?
1: Oh, only until Friday. Um, but I mean today was Galena's longest ever motorcycle ride. So um, we're only doing like little little steps. Um, but it's and, and it also it's lucky there we don't be mountains where we are now. We, do, we did we did the Grant Johnson thing and left at the crack of noon, and uh, <laughs> we, so and we stopped and saw some friends for a little while. Stopped doing that, so it hasn't taken that long to get here. So tomorrow the windy roads we just got a little taste this evening of the windy roads as the sun was going down. So tomorrow and the next day is just riding around the mountains and and we've got our camping gear. So uh, it's uh, I think it's going to be stress free, beautiful uh, riding. Fantastic. And
4: has she done a lot on the back of the bike? Has she done a no, lot nothing. of riding in the past?
1: No, that's yeah. what I say. Today was the longest ride she's ever been on. And uh, and so she, she's not been on the back of the bike much at all. So And she was brilliant. She's really good.
4: You be gentle with her now.
1: I am gentle with her. Don't want to break her. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I think uh, I was just thinking about the uh, what Sam was saying recently about where are? Why are you where you are if the weather's crap? Mm. That's that's the the one that I always think about, and we always talk to people about uh, make sure when you plan your trip that you're at an appropriate location with good weather. And if the weather's bad and it's cold, head for the equator. If it's too hot, head away from the equator. It's fairly simple, but I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not as simple as we would like it to be. it, it can take time, and sometimes you do. You can be in like Peru and you're heading for Bolivia, and yeah, in Bolivia it can be pretty darn cold. So you have to deal with it. But I think the important thing is to layer. We were talking about clothing and what you're going to carry. So layer, layer, layer. We were in um, Norway in the middle of summer, but up in the mountains in the in the interior, it was really cold and it was actually snowing. So we were literally just wearing everything we had, and the electric vests were turned on, and we were comfortable and fine and not looking like Michelin snowmen. And it worked out really well. But it's a matter of making sure that you can wear everything you're carrying. I think where people go wrong is they they have to choose. It's the heavy sweater or the light sweater. Well, no, you want one, you want to be able to wear them both at the same time. Whatever you're doing, just uh, be flexible.
3: Always. When I'm going on a longer trip, I always buy um, a jacket that's at least one size too big. Yeah. Um, and that gives me the space to layer up underneath it.
0: Are you talking sure. about a riding jacket? Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's interesting with the riding jacket thing because, you know, I've done the same thing. But um, if your jacket has armor in it, that armor has to stay in place. And when you start buying sizes that are too big for you, you almost do away with the design factors that are in there to hold the armor in place and protect your elbows and shoulders and back, and so, etc. Uh,
3: there are jackets you- that... There are jackets around that have got um, straps on the sides that you can use as sort of um, drawstrings to put it in closer when you're not wearing the layers underneath.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly I was going to say. Strap, drawstrings or snaps. My tour Tech jacket has snaps so I can adjust the the arms and the legs and everything else to get it a good snug fit. And, and that's that flexibility of fit is important in a, in a travel riding suit. I mean, you can have one that fits perfectly at home for each season if you want. You can have two or three, but how many of us can afford that? So if you want to have one suit that's going to do everything, it has to be flexible. And that's probably the number one most important thing in picking a suit is, will this work when it's cold? Will it work when it's hot? Can I adjust it? Can I make it fit for the conditions?
0: Well, wrapping things up, let's head into plugs. Let's start off with Samuel.
3: Mm. Okay. Um, Well, I'd like to plug the Overland event that's happening near Oxford. It's um, Friday the 1st to Sunday the 3rd of September. And um, over the three days, there's going to be all sorts of stuff going on. Um, There's going to be international food and drink. There's going to be author presentations and book signings, motorcycle travel films. Um, Triumph and KTM are turning up um, with bikes for test rides. Um, There'll be exhibitors with um, bikes and clothing and camping and so on. And there's going to be all sorts of workshops um, on uh, just about everything that you can think of to do um, with overlanding. And uh, the Trail Ride Fellowship, are going to be doing an off-road course and so on and so on. Um, just the list of stuff to, to go on. Um, yeah, it's, it's ex- extensive. And um, free tea right the way through the weekend. Of course, if we were anywhere else other than England, that would be free tea and coffee. But no, this is England, so it's going to be free tea throughout the weekend.
0: And you're going to be there.
3: I will be. Um, that's going to be my first event um, in the UK this summer. I've had to cancel everything else, unfortunately, but um, it's nice to have that to look forward to.
0: You've canceled because of your wrist?
3: Yeah, it's playing city buggers. But um, yeah, so anyway, the Overland event, I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be a buzz. And um, that's happening just before I'm heading back to the States again, I hope. Um, so so yeah, you it's said that's
0: September 1st to 3rd, and where is that?
3: 1st of third, heard, and it's um, just near Oxford in the UK. Right. I'll send you the link.
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and you're going back to the US again? Why?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. There's so much that I haven't explored of the United States. And while I'm fit and young and healthy, all right, the young in inverted commas, um, I just want to um, crack on and see as much as I possibly can. Um, so I've got a series of events lined up to to, um, to get to. Wow.
0: Uh, yeah. Very nice. Shirley, what do you have for us?
4: Oh, um, nothing sort of in the near future, but um, Brian and I will be at the Ginderbine Horizons Unlimited Snowy meeting in November. And from there, we're going on to Sydney for the Motorcycle Expo on the 24th to the 26th of November. So for... Australians on the, um, on the east coast there's plenty of opportunities to do motorcycle stuff with HU and then follow it up with a nice weekend in Sydney for the Motorcycle Expo.
5: Yeah we'll be on a trade stand at the Motorcycle Expo with um, the guy who ships motorcycles around the world and uh, Motorcycle Magazine and uh, yeah. we'll have our books, some of our books here for sale and uh, the, um, the Horizons meeting in Jindabyne I think will be a really good one this year we will a few people organised to present, which uh, I think would be good. And uh, I'm just talking to um, a friend of mine, Stuart, who's um, just about to ride from the east coast of Australia to the most western point on his uh, Great Australian Ride. He takes riders across there all the time on the dirt, r- riding through the Simpson Desert. But he's going to do fuel dumps across the way and try and come back across the dirt on his KTM 950 In the quickest time, Um, so and uh, believe me, Stuart can ride the dirt. So uh, he's he's tried to do a double crossing of the Simpson Desert uh, inside uh, 26 hours. Shirley,
4: I think Adventure Rider Radio has spoken to Stuart. Spoken to Stuart,
5: Mm -hmm. and um, um, Stuart was here yesterday, um, and uh, we're really looking forward to his presentation. Um, with his girlfriend, Sarah Taylor, who, um, uh, as a girl, also rode across the Simpsons, which is a pretty mean feat, solo, good effort. Yep, well, He's a
3: super character. Really, really like that guy. The more I read about him, the more I'm impressed. And yes, you know, could, he does so like. much to help other people too, doesn't he? Mm. He,
4: does. he does. He, he does. He, it all for he yep. does it all for charity. He
3: does it all for
5: charity. He raises money for um, um, sudden death syndrome and red nose. All day, and uh, he's just come back from riding the deserts and showing people how to ride in the sand, um, not far from where we live at the moment. So that was last weekend. So yeah, he's a top top guy.
0: Hey, hey let and me just—I'm just—I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to grab Grant's uh, plug because Grant has another call that he has to do coming up. Four minutes from now. Okay, so what do you have for plugs?
2: What do I got for plugs? Well, the hums. Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness, a unique two-day off-road motorcycle orienteering geocaching event. Uh, We've been running these for years in Spain, and uh, we ran them in the Rockies, Canada here last year. The Hum Monashies is coming up July 28th to 30th. There's still time to squeeze in with your team. And also the Hum Appalachians, this is a new one we're running back east. Well, back east for us anyway. And that's August 11 to 13, and there's definitely time to squeeze in there. And also, of course, we also have, as always, the Hum Spain, October 2 to 5. There's still time to sign up for that, lots of time. So get in, check out the Hum, horizonsunlimited.com slash hum. The most fun you can have off-road.
1: Graham,
0: what do you have
2: for us?
1: No, I haven't got any plugs. I have got nothing. I just want to go to bed. It's one o'clock in the morning.
6: <laughs>
0: okay. Well, I think that wraps it up then. If we're all done, I uh, I guess that uh, finishes. This is this is uh, number nineteen, I think. Did you guys re- realize that? Wow. number nineteen. Wow, episode nineteen. Wow. wow.
4: We should have a party for the twentieth.
5: Oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. <laughs> Sounds party. good to me.
0: I think it doesn't take too long. Okay, cheers everyone. Thanks.
4: Bye. Bye. Cheers.
1: Thanks cheers mate.
0: Well, that about wraps up this month's ARR Raw. And before we close things off completely, I want to encourage you to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And of course, you can download all of the episodes of Raw, but you can also listen to Adventure Rider Radio. And if you don't know that show already, that's one I think you'll definitely want to check out. Hey, if you like what we're doing here and you find value in it, um, I mean, just think of what you're paying for a cup of coffee in the morning or or maybe a slice of pizza at lunch and, and the sort of value you get from that. If you think you're getting some value from this show and you like, you don't have to, but if you like we would really appreciate it if you drop by and click on the support button and consider supporting the show. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back to you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention here on the Raw show. So it's our way of showing your our appreciation for your support for the show. So if you'd like to, you don't have to. You can always download the show for free. You can always listen for free. But like I say, if you, if you find value in what you're hearing and um, you want to help support, we, if we'd love it and we need it, So thanks very much. I want to give special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who helps make the whole thing happen. And also special thanks to our co-hosts here. Graham Field is one. He lives in Bulgaria. He's got some great adventure motorcycle travel books for you. Drop by his website, www.gramfield.co.uk. All these links will be in the show notes, by the way, on our website. Sam Manicom lives in the UK. He's also an author of several great adventure motorcycle books. Um, He writes articles as well. Find out more about Sam at www.sam-manicom.com. You can order his books there as well. Shirley Hardy-Ricks and Brian Ricks also, again, authors. They've got some great moto travel books out with their adventures in them. Um, you can find out more by dropping by overland. Com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for the adventure motorcycling community. If you're not already involved, you're not signed up there already, you've got to drop by. We've got a bunch of new things going on as well um, at HorizonsUnlimited.com. And Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum connected with travelers all around the world. So if you're going to do some traveling, long or short, that's the place you want to go. Um www.horizonsunlimited.com. My name is Jim Martin. See you next month.